Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us master historian and author Andrew Roberts. Andrew Roberts has written a good number of acclaimed books, including biographies of Lord Halifax, Lord Salisbury, Napoleon, and Winston Churchill. And today we are dealing with his newest book, The Last King of America, The Misunderstood Reign of George III, published by Viking. Welcome, Andrew Roberts. Thank you very much, Charles. It's great to uh, be on your show. Thank you. Why, may I ask, did you write this book? Well, as you mentioned, I'd already written books on Napoleon and also on the Napoleonic Wars, the Battle of Waterloo and so on. And it struck me that there was a big uh, gap, really, because um, there hadn't been a biography, a cradle to the grave, the biography of King George III, who was prime, who was king during almost all of this period, um, in uh, 50 years. And so there's this king who was on the throne at crucial moments in the Seven Years' War, your French and Indian War, um, the American War of Independence, of course, and also the Napoleonic Wars. And uh, he was a king who was the longest reigning in British um, history. And uh, yet there hadn't been a biography of him for half a century. Now, let me ask you, because you bring this up at the introduction at the beginning of the book, Apparently, and again, maybe living on the East Coast in New York, one is sort of um, a little bit out of touch with the feelings in the heartland. But I got the impression from reading, the, in particular, the beginning of the book, that there is still a great deal of animus in the United States towards uh, King George III. Is that correct? Oh, undoubtedly, yes. I subscribe to um, Google Alerts, and not a single day goes by when some American newspaper or um, website doesn't refer to him as a despot or a tyrant or a dictator and these various other freighted um, negative words um, from right across your country. So the imagery which you describe, because I have not seen it myself, from the Broadway play Hamilton is more or less in keeping with the larger national feeling about King George III. Is that the gist of it? Um, Oh, definitely. Yes. Hamilton makes him out to be. I loved Hamilton, by the way. You should go and see it. It's great fun. It taps. You tap your foot along to these uh, to these great numbers. And the and the showstopper, really, the um, the real person who steals the show is King George III, who comes over. He's he's uh, he's cynical and um, and camp and a bit sinister and uh, clearly sadistic uh, in the words that he uses. And I'm afraid he, that is a complete, that, that does sum up what an awful lot of Americans think of him, but it's completely historically incorrect. And so I thought that there was a, um, an opportunity to, uh, to actually ask Americans to look again at their last king. Now, who were George III's parents and how close was he to them? 
Um, they were Frederick, Prince of Wales, and Princess Augusta. Um, they, he was very close to, um, to both of them. They were loving parents, which is unusual, by the way, in the Hanoverians. They're a dynasty with very uh, sort of weird, dysfunctional family uh, relationships, frankly, but not with him. Luckily, he um, had a very good relationship with his parents, but tragically, his father died when he was 12. And so he had to um, instead try to create a relationship with his grandfather, King George II, who was um, horrible to him. Um, uh, frankly, he used to box him around the ears. And, uh, and he even, when um, Frederick Prince of Wales died, uh, who George II hated, he hated his own son, he didn't bury the corpse uh, for two weeks, he let he let it just decompose in the room above George the Third's um, bedroom. Particularly vicious thing to have done. How much influence did his father, Frederick Prince of Wales, exercise on George the Third's future political views as king? A great deal, um, much more than you'd imagine, considering that he um, he died when George was twelve. But he wrote this political testament. Um, he didn't know he was dying. He died very suddenly of an aneurysm. But um, before then, he had written this uh, this long and um, and quite detailed political testament. Uh, he was under the which George III tried to keep to as much as possible throughout his reign, and he was a believer in the political concepts of um, Lord Bolingbroke, who wrote a book called The Idea of the Patriot King. And uh, George the um, George the Third uh, also, one can see, attempted to stick to the precepts of that as well. What were the relations between George the Third and John Stuart, the Third Earl of Bute? Well, he was the uh, Lord Bute was a sort of father figure. He was a surrogate father to him essentially. He became his governor uh, and his tutor. And so they became very close. Uh, he was the person who really introduced George III to the Enlightenment concepts. Um, to he, he got him to write long essays uh, in the 1750s before he became king about history and the law and the constitution and so on. And he also introduced him to Georgian architecture and uh, botany and various other um, interests of uh, George's for the rest of his life. Unfortunately, when George became king, he didn't uh, take very long, um, three years, to install Butte as prime minister, uh, who turned out to be absolutely useless. He was, a, he was a fine tutor, but when it came to actually trying to run the affairs of the country, he was a disaster. Why did the writer, once dubbed the Prime Minister of Taste, Horace Walpole, dislike George III so much? Uh, because Lord Bute had stopped him from being an artistic advisor to, um, to George III, and uh, also because he quite wrongly, Horace Walpole quite wrongly, thought that George III had um, a desire to increase his powers under the Constitution, and he was the son of... Uh, uh, Horace Walpole was the son of the Whig Prime Minister, Sir Robert Walpole, and, um, and clearly he didn't want to see that. But um, he was also a tremendously malicious uh, gossip who um, frankly invented things um, and made things up in his, uh, in his correspondence and diaries and so on. And so all of the people who up until now, over the last 200 years, have used Horace Walpole as a, uh, as a believable and reliable source 
I think, have got George III badly wrong. Uh, in a review of your book in the American periodical, The New Criterion, uh, there was a statement which I presume is incorrect, but I just wanted to confirm for myself. Uh, it stated that George III spoke English with a German accent. I presume that's incorrect. Yes, that is incorrect. He was the first of his uh, family, not, well, <laughs> George I didn't even speak English. Uh, George II and Frederick, Prince of Wales, both spoke English with a German accent, but, um, but, print, but um, George III did not. And, um, and actually, that was appreciated a great deal by the British. When he made a speech at the state opening of Parliament in 1761, he said, born and educated in this country, I glory in the name of Britain. Uh, and this was um, because he was the first king for about 150 years to have been born and educated in in England, and that made him very popular. How good was his German? Did he speak German without an English accent? Um, yes, and also he spoke French and um, one other language. He spoke four languages in all. Why did George III oust Pitt the Elder from uh, Newcastle's ministry? Because he thought that um, Pitt the Elder wanted to pursue a continental uh, strategy in the Seven Years' War, and um, he thought that it would be better for Britain to pursue a more um, uh, maritime strategy. And why did he subsequently oust the Duke of Newcastle from the premiership? Because he wanted um, Lord Bute to become Prime Minister. He was much closer to him. And also because he saw that uh, the Duke of Newcastle, who represented the Whig um, political uh, philosophy and interest, uh, was, um, uh, came from a Whig uh, tradition that went back 80 years, where they had been in control uh, pretty much the whole of the time since the Glorious Revolution. And so he wanted to be able to choose people who were Tories or uh, independents or were Scots, but basically outside the Whig oligarchy. Why did he choose the future Queen Charlotte as his bride? Um, because there was no one else. He went through a series of uh, seven or eight different Protestant German brides, um, and uh, not all, all German. I think there was a Scandinavian one there as well. But uh, for reasons um, that I give in the first chapter of my book, uh, none of them were suitable. And the only one who was, were, was uh, Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, who he never met um, and indeed only met six hours before his, uh, his marriage to her. Why did George III drop Lord Bute as his chief advisor in 1763? Because he had turned out to be useless and... Uh, uh, a bad politician, somebody who, uh, who made uh, a series of uh, errors and who um, can, couldn't really control the uh, majority in the House of Commons, um, except with the king's very strong support. And he realised that he just wasn't the man for the job. What, in your opinion, were, were the origins of the troubles with America in the early 1760s? Um, I think there were uh, several. The... Um, uh, the major one was that America was a uh, was prime and in the correct moment for of its historical development for independence. Uh, it had two and a half million people. It had a uh, burgeoning economy that was growing about seven percent year on year. 
it uh, had more bookshops in Philadelphia than in any other city of the empire apart from London, and it was ready for independence. And also, it had no threat as a result of the Treaty of Paris from the French on the North American continent. The nearest place they were was in Haiti, which was a thousand miles away. 1765 saw the first symptoms of what became known subsequently as the King's Malady. What were the nature of this illness from the perspective of modern science? Well, um, modern science, recent modern science since 2010, has completely overturned the theory of the last half century. I go into this in some um, detail in my appendix of my book, where uh, for, for 50 years we believed that the king suffered from porphyria, which was a physiological illness. But in fact, it turns out that the symptoms given to doctors back in the 1960s um, were hugely misleading. And uh, in fact, the king suffered from um, bipolar disorder, effective type 1. And that is, a, um, of course, completely different disease. It's a form of manic depression. And, uh, and so we have, until my book, my book, I think, is the first biography of uh, George III to um, reflect the uh, modern view of this. Why did George III clash with uh, George Grenville when he was prime minister? Because he didn't like him personally. Again, this is a problem with George III at the beginning of his reign, at least in the first uh, 10 years of his reign, when he had seven prime ministers. Um, he thought it was important for him to get on with them, uh, hence his placing Butin as prime minister. But um, the fact was that ultimately that isn't the most important thing in a successful prime minister. And um, George Grenville was um, a man who made mistakes. He, he was responsible for the Stamp Act, for example. Um, but he was also prolix and boring um, in private conversation. And George III just simply didn't like him. And, uh, and as I say, that isn't a good enough reason to sack a prime minister. How did George III react to the American protest against the Stamp Act? Well, he understood, he understood them at the beginning. It was only really when um, uh, they got uh, violent and um, his officials were started to be tarred and feathered and so on, ultimately, of course, leading up to the Boston Tea Party, that, uh, which wasn't until eight years after the Stamp Act, that, um, that he turned into a much more proactive um, uh, and tough um, hardliner. Um, at the beginning, he wasn't a hardliner at all. And um, the interesting thing about the Stamp Act was that it raised, it was intended to raise between 40 and 60,000 pounds, which is a tiny amount of money between the uh, 1.9 million non-enslaved Americans. But the trouble was that it fell on those parts of the community, such as lawyers and, uh, and journalists, um, who were most eloquent, really, uh, and noisy in its rejection. Uh, why did George III accept Pitt the Elder's ministry in the late 1760s? Um, because after the Stamp Act in, um, uh, collapsed and was clearly so unpopular that it needed to be repealed, um, Pitt the Elder, who was um, considered to be pro-American, actually um, might have been the man who could have, uh, who could have um, uh, got the American colonists 
back on side with the um, uh, with the British government, and uh, he'd opposed the Stamp Act. Therefore, it looked like he might be a, a very good conciliator. What was the nature of Edmund Burke's attack on George III? Why was it so influential for so long with historians? Um, Burke essentially blamed um, the king for trying to increase the powers of the crown. Um, at some stage, he, he became pretty paranoid, frankly, about uh, George the Third, and it wasn't until after his great um, Reflections on the Revolution in France was published in 1790 that he came round to uh, George III and, and recognised him for the bulwark of the constitution that he was. And uh, George III therefore had an enemy in, uh, in and a very eloquent enemy in Edmund Burke for the majority of his reign. And would it be true to say that in that particular role, Burke was acting as a sort of propagandist for the old core Whig uh, faction. Precisely, yes. And a very impressive propagandist he was too. He had, uh, um, he has that fabulous turn of phrase that you see in Reflections, that which he used against George III um, on a very regular basis. The fact was that the king didn't have any plans to extend his role in the constitution. It was already a very extensive role since the Glorious Revolution. And, um, and he was happy with the powers that he had, and he revered the British Constitution. Why did George III support Lord North so long as Premier, when Lord North was not obviously the best man to manage a war ministry? And, because... um, and who would, in retrospect, who do you think would have been a good man to run, run a war ministry? He couldn't see anybody better who was able to command the... Um, majority in the House of Commons, but ultimately pretty much anyone would have been better than Lord North who didn't want the job. And uh, I think it's pretty essential um, only to have prime ministers who want to be prime minister. The minute they don't want to be prime minister any longer, then they really have to go. And he made some 20 attempts to resign, but the king simply um, looking at the rest of the cabinet and the rest of the government, and indeed outside the government, couldn't see a, uh, a war leader who would be um, able to command the majority. In retrospect, how responsible do you believe was King George III for the failure of British strategy in the American war? I don't think he was responsible for it at all, owing to the fact that he wasn't part of the creation of grand strategy. And all he really did was, as a constitutional monarch, to sign off in it um, once it had been created. It was created by largely by Lord George Germain, and um, the Germain plan, uh, which was the only really serious plan of the whole of the American War of Independence from the British side, was to send Sir William Howe up north uh, along the Hudson River to Albany at the same time that the um, General Sir John Burgoyne came down from Canada also to Albany and thereby used the Hudson to split off the New England colonies from the rest of the 13 colonies. It was a plan that had it um, been followed might have um, might have worked. Um, there's a lot of historical debate about that, but it didn't work because Sir William Howe veered off eastwards to capture Philadelphia. And as a result, um, uh, Sir John Burgoyne got caught and captured at Saratoga in October 1777. And immediately that happened, or at least four months after that happened, the French uh, declared war 
uh, then the next year the Spanish, then the next year the Dutch. And so Britain was involved in a massive uh, global war on about 10 different fronts, of which the American one was no longer the most important. How did George III react to the news of Yorktown? Um, he reacted actually in a, in a strange way that, uh, that um, meant that the war was, instead of just ending there and then, it continued because he thought that it might be possible to hang on to, uh, to New York um, and Charleston, which had been captured in 1780, and one or two other um, sort of key ports on the eastern seaboard, and, um, and thereby try to negotiate a, um, uh, an end to the war in which Britain was able to keep these um, ports, which in retrospect is an extraordinary thing to believe that America would, would become independent without having New York as part of its, um, of its uh, country. But nonetheless, um, that, was the, uh, that was the initial hope. How extraordinary in retrospect was uh, George III's actions in connection with the dismissal of the North Fox Coalition Ministry? Well, it's, it's the only time in his reign that he does something that historians consider to be unconstitutional in that he appointed a prime minister who didn't have the um, command of the majority in the House of Commons, namely William Pitt the Younger. But actually, when you go into it, which I try to do in, uh, in my book, um, in fact, it was the radical Whigs, including Edmund Burke, who were becoming um, unconstitutional because essentially they were trying to nationalise India, um, the holdings of the East India Company, and bring them under the control of the Whig Party, uh, which would have um, completely uh, unbalanced British politics. And so the king... Um, installed this um, this 24-year-old Prime Minister, William Pitt the Younger. And, um, and he subsequently won the next general election in a landslide, which I think vindicated the King's decision. Why, why did he appoint Pitt the Younger as Premier, given the fact that he had so little political experience? Because he had the name of his great uh, father, Pitt the Elder, um, he was obviously a brilliant uh, speaker. He was able to command the attention of the House of Commons. He had a, um, a great uh, financial mind. He was extremely impressive uh, when it came to the budget and uh, the estimates and so on. And, um, and he believed that he could bring together a coalition of uh, everybody in Parliament who wasn't a fully paid up um, Foxite or Northite to, um, to follow him. So, and it turned out he was correct because uh, although they thought that his administration would be out by, uh, by Christmas of uh, 1783, in fact, it was still there in 1801, uh, some uh, 18 years later. How did George III react to the French Revolution, particularly in its early stages up to the uh, execution of Louis XVI? Well, one could imagine that he might so show some schadenfreude because, of course, it was Louis XVI's decision to go to war against Britain in, uh, in February 1778, which had been the key thing that had... Um, or one of the key moments, at least, obviously, American leadership and the sublime... Uh, uh, military leadership of George Washington and others was the other major reason. 
but he didn't feel schadenfreude at all um, about uh, the fall of Louis XVI. He recognised, of course, that it had implications, that the end of the French monarchy had indication, implications for his own position in, uh, in Britain. Um, and he uh, sent the court into mourning when uh, the news came that Louis XVI had been guillotined, and then again uh, a few months later when they guillotined Marie Antoinette. Why did George III, or, or for that matter, Queen Charlotte, um, have such great personal popularity uh, beginning in the 1790s? Because of the French Revolution, in part, because they'd been on the throne for 30 years, and uh, the British do tend to grow fond of their uh, monarchs as they grow older, uh, because people had looked at the alternative, you know, and what was happening in France, especially at the time of the terror and Robespierre and so on, and recognised they certainly didn't want that to happen uh, in Britain. And so they cleaved towards uh, the king and, and queen, but also because of the personality of the king and queen. They, uh, he was nicknamed Farmer George, which although intellectuals said that in order to try to belittle him. In fact, uh, at a time when some 80% of Britons took their livelihood from agriculture, that made him popular. Um, the articles that he wrote in agricultural magazines about crop rotation and manure and so, so on. He also, um, he also went on walkabouts uh, completely unaccompanied by an entourage in which he would uh, wander the, the country lanes and talk to farmers about pig prices and things like that. And that uh, also endeared him to his people. And so, um, and also, interestingly, people did not uh, take the 1788 to 1789 bout, the longest um, hitherto up to that point bout of his uh, malady, of his illness against him. And there were huge nationwide celebrations in April 1789 when he um, recovered. Why did George III dismiss Pitt the Younger from the ministry in 1801? Um, over Catholic emancipation. The time of the union with Ireland in 1801, uh, William Pitt the Younger um, made hints that the Catholics of Ireland, who formed the great majority, of course, of the population of Ireland, um, would get the vote. And he did this without the king's knowledge and certainly without the king's permission, uh, without the majority of the cabinet being informed, let alone agreeing, and uh, certainly in the face of overwhelming majorities against that in the, uh, in the House of Lords and the House of Commons. And the, um, and the Church of England didn't like it much either. So George III um, did a great deal of thinking about this, and he, um, and he recognised that it was completely contrary to his coronation oath um, to, uh, to damage the, uh, the Protestant Church, the Church of England, as by law established. And, um, and he uh, therefore dismissed the younger. I mean, today we see it as a very sort of bigoted move. One has to remember that only in 1780, there were these riots, the Gordon riots in, uh, in London that had cost 400 dead um, as a result of, uh, of um, Protestant anti-Catholic bigotry, essentially. And um, so he also knew that his entire throne depended on his Protestantism 
And that was the only reason George I had been uh, come King of England. He was 51st in line uh, in succession to the throne, but he was a Protestant, and that's what, uh, that's what put his family on the throne. How effective a king was he in the last years before his final breakdown? Um, he, was, he was effective really up until 1804 when he went blind. Um, then after that, he, he was very conscientious, um, but he rather depended on his, uh, on his uh, secretary, Colonel Taylor, to uh, read all the acts of parliament to him and, um, and of course, to, uh, to write letters for him and so on. Uh, also, when Pip the Younger came back to power in 1804, um, they, there were various powers that the prime minister had sort of accreted over the years. Um, and, uh, and so the king was less, um, first of all, less interested in the day-to-day running of the country anyway, but secondly, quite content to give the, um, the ruling of the country to Pitt the Younger, who he uh, admired and respected, except for over the Catholic thing. How did he spend the last years of his life after 1811? Oh, it's a tragic story, um, I'm afraid. The last bit is, uh, is very sad. As well as being blind, he went deaf. Uh, he was also senile. And he had a 10-year bout of his manic depression. And so he, uh, he sp- basically spent the entire time confined to his apartments, uh, playing the harpsichord, not being visited by his family, and finally dying in uh, January 1820. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? I think it would be um, that he was not a tyrant. Um, uh, Thomas Jefferson in the uh, Declaration of Independence um, had to make him out to be a tyrant, of course, because it was wartime propaganda where they'd been fighting for 14 months and uh, he made 28, and it's the most beautiful Shakespearean sublime piece of prose, um, the Declaration, for the first third of it at least. It makes you proud to be human. But uh, in the second two thirds, he levels 28 charges against uh, the king, only two of which actually hold water. But those two, the 17th, which is about taxation, and the 22nd, which is about um, Parliament's veto rights over American legislation, in and of themselves justify the American Revolution. And the fascinating thing about the American Revolution was really that um, uh, there are any number of countries in the world who have uh, established their sovereignty and their independence as a result of oppression But what makes um, America so exceptional a country is that it wasn't being oppressed. It was actually a very light, limited uh, government in America, very low taxation rates with regard to any other country in the world, pretty much. Um, And one of the freest societies in the world. He wasn't a man who, George III wasn't a man who arrested any American editors or closed American newspapers or uh, stationed large amounts of troops in any American city, except for Boston in 1768. He um, was uh, the exact opposite of the tyrant that he's been made out to be. On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Andrew Roberts, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Thank you again, Andrew Roberts. You are kind, Charles. I much appreciate it. It was a a fascinating talk.